last Sunday morning, we began a message series uh, starting to go through the New Testament and some of the Old Testament, looking at uh, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of this has been to, uh, will be to draw our attention more to who the Spirit is and how He works and wants to work in our lives. I, uh, I'm not sure that all of us uh, are living lives filled with the Spirit on a day-to-day basis, experiencing uh, His presence in its fullness and experiencing the power that He wants to provide us to live godly lives, fruitful lives. And so uh, we're going to continue to work through this for a few weeks, several weeks Uh, life in the Spirit. Jesus, if you remember, we looked at this last Sunday from John chapter 3. He told Nicodemus that the only way to enter into the kingdom, the only way to have a personal relationship with God and to spend eternity in heaven is for the Holy Spirit to bring forth a new birth, a spiritual birth. You remember Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that new birth is due to the work of the Holy Spirit, working through the gospel, moving us from death to life. This morning, I want us to see that the same Spirit who brings new life in us is also the same Spirit who is living in us. One of the most basic truths about being a Christian and following Jesus is that you and I are indwelled by the person of the Holy Spirit. And so I invite you to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So if you find that in your Bible, we'll read there in just a moment. The background is towards towards the end of Paul's life, during his latter years, he's investing himself in a group of people For two years, he pours himself into the congregation of the Ephesian church. And near the end of that time, a group of messengers arrive in Ephesus, and they travel to see Paul and bring with him a letter from their church back in Corinth. The congregants there are experiencing some serious issues in the church, issues that if left unresolved, threaten to tear it apart. All of the issues were put into some kind of written form conveying the spiritual condition of the congregation, and the messengers were then sent forth by the church, assigned with a task to deliver this letter to the Apostle Paul appealing to him for his counsel and guidance. They wanted to get his perspectives and his advice. And this letter that we have, 1 Corinthians, is Paul's response to their plea for help. And while the congregation at Corinth had some serious issues, I think it's important for us to give them credit. I'm always one who is quick to criticize the church at Corinth. You've heard me make fun of any church called Corinth Baptist Church. It just, it just, I just wouldn't want to have that for the name of my church. But I, I think we need to give the Corinthians some credit and not overlook the most obvious fact is they did something. When they knew they had some issues, when they knew they were struggling, 
they didn't just do nothing. They sought out help. They tried to secure godly counsel. Some of you have probably heard that one of the definitions of insanity is what? Doing the same old thing that you've always done before, and then what? Expecting different results. I want to encourage you this morning, whatever issues you're experiencing in your life, things that you might be wrestling with, I want to encourage you, like the Corinthians, to take action, to secure godly counsel. I reached literally out to a brother this week and really didn't just plan on doing it, just kind of came through the conversation, and I expressed some of the hurt that I was experiencing over a, another relationship, and this brother listened to me and then said some things that I needed to hear. I'm just proposing to you that I'm continuing to learn, to be open and transparent, to be honest with myself and others, and to be honest with God, that I don't know everything. In fact, the older I get, the more I recognize that I don't know. But I want to keep learning and to give my very best to family and friends and church community and to the Lord. And so while the Corinthians are often criticized, at least they take action. They do something smart. And as Paul writes this letter, he notes some positives and some negatives to the Corinthians. On the positive side, he says, hey, you all were saved. You heard and received the gospel. You responded to God's call upon your life and faith. And then he goes on to say, and you're enjoying fellowship with Jesus and fellowship with one another. You've been adopted. You've come to experience the blessings of having brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and your church has grown numerically. Those are all very positive. But then he goes on to list some of the negatives. The Corinthians were far from unified. They were characterized by factions and division and strife. Some of the members were contentious towards each other and actually had developed camps in the church where they were aligning with brothers and sisters against others. I'm with Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and just cliques and factions in the church and Paul then, having noted all these positive things, but then all of these negatives that were threatening them, he rebukes them as being spiritually immature. You can see that in the third chapter. And he said, spiritual immaturity leads to sin, and like leaven, their sins were spreading out to others in the church. And so he makes several appeals, and I'm getting to the text. Several appeals. He first says, I want all of you to remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. It is God's power unto salvation, and it is the gospel that will provide you wisdom for spiritual living, uh, something that we do regularly as a body is to take the Lord's Supper. We put our feet under his table and take the bread and take the cup. And Jesus said one of the main purposes for us doing that is so that we would remember him. As often as you do this, he's saying remember the gospel. Believers should be regularly taking the Lord's Supper 
as a way to remember the gospel because the gospel not only leads to our salvation, but the gospel is what drives us to godly living and gives us wisdom to live for Christ. And so he makes this appeal, remember the gospel. Second, he says, remember your allegiance is not to people. There's something good about being loyal and dependable and trustworthy, but ultimately our allegiance is not to men. Our allegiance is to Christ. Christ is the one who died for you. And so Paul is saying, fix your focus on him. Remember who Jesus is. Remember everything that he says. And remember to try to have the mind of Christ. However he thinks is the way I and you want to think as his followers. How many of you ever struggle with the way you think? (laughs) With your attitudes. Went through a little situation this week and just struggling. God how do I respond to this? How should I be thinking about this person and what I'm experiencing here? So God, I, I want the mind of Christ, and which is something we pray for. And then third, which this appeal that he makes is to the church in Corinth, which we're going to read about. He says, I want you to remember the gospel, remember that your allegiance is to Christ, And I want you to remember the Holy Spirit. Remember the Holy Spirit. Earlier in this letter, in the second chapter, there's a couple of familiar verses. He says, I has not seen, the human ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart or the mind of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. He says, even these deep things that God reveals to us through the Holy Spirit. And so he says, remember the Holy Spirit. He reveals God to us and the things of God to us. And then today, he says, this appeal regarding the Spirit is to remember that he indwells you. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. Amen. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any of them. Foods for the stomach and the stomachs for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And then the heart of the appeal. Do you not know 
that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would teach us from your word and that your spirit would bear witness with us and would drive these, home, these truths deeper into our lives. And God, we would live holy lives that are pleasing unto you, being holy even as you are holy, growing in sanctification and perfection that you might be honored through our, through our lives, we pray. Bless your word. Give us ears to hear you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this text, I want us to see three things regarding the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. First, Paul says very clearly in this text that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Specifically, the Holy Spirit dwells within your body. If you remember last Sunday, again, I mentioned this, Jesus is teaching Nicodemus that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to Jesus, to awaken us to our need for salvation. Being dead in our trespasses and sins, being in that kind of spiritually dead condition before God, we don't even recognize that we need God. We're spiritually dead before him, but Jesus is teaching, the Bible is clear, that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to awaken us to our need, that we being dead in our trespasses and sins cannot save ourselves. We do not just wake up one day and think, well, today is God's bingo day. I think I'm going to accept Jesus as my Savior. That's not the way our salvation works. Purely out of his goodness, God shows forth, the Bible says, demonstrates his grace, and the Holy Spirit begins to go to work, to bear witness with us. And the Bible says one of the first things that happens is the Holy Spirit begins to speak to us. And somehow, even in our dead condition before God, he speaks through the gospel. And we begin to hear the gospel. And Jesus said, and the Spirit not only speaks to us to help us to hear the gospel, but then the Holy Spirit begins to go further, and he begins to convict us, to convince us of our sinfulness and of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and of the judgment that we are standing in, condemned, judged. And then Jesus said in John 6, 44, then the Spirit begins to woo us. The Spirit begins to draw us. No man comes to the Father unless my Spirit draws them in. All of which leads us to a response. Do you remember the time that you responded to the gospel? That you begin to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit? as he spoke to you and convicted you of your sin and your need for the righteousness of Christ, that he drew you unto yourself, and you responded how? Through repentance and faith. You repented of your sins. You said, God, I know that I'm a sinner. 
I've sinned against you. And God, I'm sorry for my sin. And so I want to turn. God, I'm turning from self and I'm turning to you. And God, if you'll save me, I'll surrender my life to you. That's salvation. It's a surrender. Produced through on our part by repentance and faith. Or as the Spirit begins to work and speak and draw and convict, the other response is to reject. To harden our hearts against God and to put Him off to, or to delay. If we repent and place our faith in Christ, surrendering our lives to Him, then Jesus said to Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit produces a new birth within us. You remember? Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh. You've experienced a physical birth, but now you need a spiritual birth. And I would say to you, as a, if you're a Christian, if your spiritual birth is not just as real to you as your physical birth, then you might not have experienced a spiritual birth. It is a real birth. It is coming to life before God. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, which we'll eventually get to, he said, Peter writes about it, is he says the Holy Spirit, when we're born again, when we're saved, and he dwells within us, he says he produces and gives us a new, new desire, a a new nature, a spiritual nature. And that nature is what causes us to have new desires. Any person who says that I'm a Christian, that I've accepted Christ and I know Jesus, but has no evidence in their life of any spiritual hunger, any spiritual thirst for God to worship him, to be in his word, to pray, to love him, to serve him, then I would question their spiritual salvation. Because there is a new nature, a new spirit that he produces that craves the things of God. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, blessed are you. This is the character of my disciple. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be filled. The spirit, once we are saved, produces this new birth. We're regenerated. And Paul is reminding these Corinthians that this spirit, the Holy Spirit, indwells you. And he indwells you at the moment of conversion. Look at verse 19. He says, the spirit is given us from God to indwell. To indwell. The actual word there is oikio, which comes from a, another Greek word, oikos. Have many of you heard of that word oikos? It's literally translated house. Oikos, house. And so to indwell is, carries the idea of indwelling in a house. And so I want you to think about that. As a disciple, a follower of Jesus, my body and your body physically, these, these houses, these bodies, these tents that we have are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We are his house. I would also add when he indwells us, the scriptures are very clear. He never leaves us, never. He never leaves us. He moves in and takes up permanent residency. Permanent residency. Never leaves. Never abandons this house. I was thinking about the residency of the Holy Spirit in this house, and I, I had this memory of of when I was a child and my mother and dad had a couple of old rent houses 
And back in that day, you used to go every week to collect rent. So my dad or my mom, they were landlords, and I don't know how you connect rent today, some other ways, but that's it was the old way. The landlord would come by, and I remember being in the car, and my dad would knock on the door, my mom didn't, they would collect rent. Well, as they knocked on the door and to collect rent, week after week, no one would ever answer the door. There was either never a car there or you knew somebody was inside, but no one would open the door. They wouldn't answer. And so there was no rent being paid and they were still living in, in the apartment. And I remember, you know, hearing about that and the frustration of week after week, month after month, you couldn't get them out. And finally, they had to go down to the court or wherever they went somewhere to file for eviction papers, and it was for Christmas, and they went before a sympathetic judge, and he gave them several more months before they would get out. And so it took legal action to remove them. Well, the good news is for us, the Holy Spirit is a permanent resident. You can't get him out. He's, he's dug in. You're his home. You're where he dwells. And listen to this pledge. This is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. This is God's pledge to you. This is a promise to you that God makes regarding the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him, Christ Jesus, you trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. So you heard the gospel, you trusted in the gospel, the gospel of your salvation. And he says, in whom also, having believed the gospel, he says you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. When is the last time you sealed something? When's the last time you sealed something? When's the last time you licked an envelope and sealed the envelope? When's the last time you painted something? I've been doing a lot of painting lately and paint protects, it seals, keeps certain things out and keeps everything good in to seal. The idea is God says, this is my pledge. This is my promise to you. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit to protect you and to provide for you. The application is you and I at conversion received God's mark inside of us, a pledge, a promise. And that pledge, that promise is my Holy Spirit will never leave you. He is always going to work in you to complete his purposes in your life. And guess what? Even when you and I don't perform well, even if you and I don't pay the rent, and don't do all that God wants us to do, he's not going to move out. He's never going to abandon you. He's never going to divorce you, no matter how poorly you might perform. He has made his home inside of you. And my hope and my prayer is that we will spiritually begin to realize and to recognize him more and more. 
I don't know when I started doing this, but there's been a change in my prayer life a little bit over the last several years, and I actually talk to the Holy Spirit. If you, I wouldn't do this if you're around me, because I, I kind of, don't you kind of pray differently when you're by yourself than when you're with other people? I, I don't ever pray to try to impress anyone or uh, to for show or to draw attention. I don't pray that way publicly, but I do pray differently when I'm by myself. And I found myself talking to the Holy Spirit. Praying to God the Father in Jesus' name, talking to the Lord Jesus, but talking to the Holy Spirit, calling his name, Holy Spirit. I know that you're with me, and I, I pray you help me and guide me and lead me and speak to me and bear witness with me and continue to come just talking to the Spirit like he's a real person of the Godhead, a real person of the Trinity. You are the dwelling place, the home of the Holy Spirit. Second, verse 19 also makes it clear, since our bodies are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, notice the conclusion. He says what? We're temples. Not just the dwelling place. He says you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul, being a Jew, had great admiration and respect for the temple. The temple that, you remember in the Old Testament, that Solomon construction, or constructed and then was destroyed. You remember, and then Ezra and Nehemiah and the great move back to Jerusalem, they rebuilt the walls and rebuilt the temple. And you, 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 the temple was one of the great wonders of the world, especially for Jews. And because the temple, this dwelling, this structure represented God's presence with his people. You remember, originally, God made his presence known in the Old Testament in lots of different ways, and it's a subject for another, but he made his presence known through, many ways, through uh, theophanies, through a pillar of fire, a, a cloud. <clears throat> God made his presence known through the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, God established the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent, and that tent was torn down and put up and torn down and put up. And so as they moved, they'd tear it down. As they resettled somebody else, they'd reset it up. And, and so that tabernacle and inside the tabernacle was the, was the Ark of the Covenant. And so as God's people moved, the tabernacle moved with them. And it reminded them that no matter where you go, God was there. He was present with them through the tabernacle. And then you know, remember David wanted to build God a permanent house, and because there was too much blood on his hands, his, he said, you're never going to get to do this, but your son Solomon built a temple. And then Solomon built this awesome, miraculous, glorious worship place, this house for the Lord. He said, God, I want to build you a house. So he built the temple, and the temple represented God's dwelling, God's presence with his people. And Jews were understanding of that. And in the New Testament, the gospel makes it clear that when Jesus Christ was crucified, the temple was no longer needed. In fact, the Bible says when Jesus died by the finger of God, he went inside of the temple and God 
tore the veil of the temple from top to bottom. You remember reading about that? He, he tore the veil, and the veil was a thick curtain inside of the temple that separated the worshipers from the holy of holies. It, the temple separated us from the most holiest of God's presence. And when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, God tore that veil, split it wide open. He removed the curtain. There are no longer any barriers for us from God's presence. And he moved further. He then moved his residency from the temple, from that building into believers. His presence moved from being with his people to being in his people. Therefore, here's the point. He says in verse 20, you are not your own. Verse 20, for you were bought at a price, redeemed, bought at a price, purchased. Think about this. God paid a heavy price for our salvation. God the Father sacrificed his only begotten son to redeem us, to pay a price for our sins. Therefore, we belong to him. When we surrendered our life to Christ, we were justified, adopted, brought into the family, belonging to him, and he has moved into us, taking up permanent residency. So as a disciple of Jesus, my body, your body physically is a temple of the Holy Spirit, indwelled by the person of the Holy Spirit. We no longer belong to ourselves. We are not our own, redeemed and bought at a price. Temples of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the last point from this text in verse 20, it kind of provides the summary, the conclusion to all of this. He says, we have a new purpose then for living. A new purpose for life. Listen, if, if you were, tomorrow were to go to school, go to the workplace, wherever you are, and you were to engage in a conversation with someone and they were, just said they just, they're, they're just struggling with life. They were empty, they're lonely, isolated, just, they're just struggling with life. And you had an opportunity to listen to them. Let me ask you, would you be able to convey to them the purpose of your life? You could lovingly say to that person, I understand what you're saying to me. But I want to tell you, that I have a purpose. I found meaning in my life. And the purpose and the meaning of my life is not just to work here with you, not just to draw a check. Started going to work on Monday, work all week to draw a paycheck, to pay bills, and then going back to work on Monday, draw another paycheck to pay more bills, and going back to work the following week to work hard and make another check so I can pay more bills and going back to work the next week to work and make a check to pay more bills and is that what you would say the purpose of your life is? To draw a paycheck and pay bills? No. We're indwelled by the person of the Holy Spirit. We're temples 
He's made his permanent residency in this. We've been bought at a price. We've been redeemed. And so he says in verse 20, this is the purpose of my life. This is the purpose of your life. This is the purpose of our church collectively. It is to glorify God with our body and our spirit. To glorify God with our body and spirit. Body and spirit. Notice he lists both of those in verse 20. That means physically I want to glorify God with my body and mentally I glorify God with my spirit, my attitude, my mind, and my thoughts. Earlier in the text, Paul describes ways that many of the Corinthians uh, were abusing, misusing their bodies, doesn't he? Through sexual immorality. They were not glorifying God with their bodies. They were not glorifying God with their spirit, but were sexually immoral. And Paul's appeal to them was to think about the temple. Think about a place designed for worship. Think about this physical structure that you and I were, are setting in this morning. This, God, God, doesn't, God doesn't dwell in pews, and he doesn't dwell in carpet, and he doesn't dwell in drywall and ceiling tiles, and he doesn't dwell in light fixtures, and he doesn't dwell in instruments. This is a place that it's a wonderful place, a physical place that has been built for his glory and for his purposes, but he doesn't dwell in buildings. Not anymore. Could you imagine, as you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about sexual immorality, could you imagine coming into this physical place like this? And God doesn't dwell in the building, but just could you imagine coming into a physical place like this and committing some of the sexually immoral acts that are described in 1 Corinthians 6 inside this building? I mean, while he doesn't dwell in this building, there's still something special about this facility that we ascribe to his presence and we ascribe to worship and praise and honor the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But I, I couldn't Imagine sexually immoral things happening inside this facility that people were doing physically with their bodies inside this place. Now, they'll do stuff like that in clubs and other kinds of places, and I won't, a, that's a subject for another day. But that's foreign. That's anathema to think about something like that happening inside the facilities of Hillcrest Baptist Church, this worship place. Well, if you and I are temples of the Holy Spirit and we would never think about doing something like that in a place where that God doesn't even dwell, think about if you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit, then how could I, why would I do those kinds of things inside this temple, with this temple? Likewise, think of your body in the same way a place physically where the Holy Spirit dwells, your body as a holy place belonging to him. My body and my spirit, which means I want to glorify God in the way I dress. Even in my dress, I want to draw attention to Christ. I don't want to draw attention to my own body. I want to decrease. I want him to increase. That means how I speak. I want to glorify 
with my body. I want to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ with my words. And I don't want unwholesome things coming out of my mouth. I don't want to say things to my wife or to my kids or to my family or to my core workers that, don't, that doesn't glorify God. I don't want my hands to do things that would not glorify God. And with this temple, I don't want to use anything physically with my body that would hinder the glory of the Lord. I want my thoughts, my attitudes, my mind, and God help us to to take every thought captive. Oh, oh, our thoughts, they can, boy, I'm glad that, I'm glad that, that God would never post all of my thoughts on a screen for somebody to know how, how messed up and how wicked and distorted our thoughts can become. Amen? The Holy Spirit lives in us, and we are his temple, and, the, and we, we want to glorify him with all of it. Attitudes, action, talk, dress, just, just, so brothers and sisters, you are home to the Holy Spirit. He's dwelling in you. And he has a legal right to live there, never to leave, has taken up residence and, and his seal and his promise is until the day of your redemption. He'll never leave. He'll never leave. And he is going to continue to work in you and protect you and to perfect in you all these. I, I love Philippians 1.6. It was a theme for this year's Vacation Bible School with our little kids. Do you remember the verse? And he who began, started a good work in you, he's indwelled you through the Holy Spirit. And the one who indwells you is working in you and he who began, who started this good work in you, is faithful, will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. I beseech you, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices unto the Lord, holy well-pleasing unto him, which is your reasonable service. That's reasonable. That shouldn't be radical. That should just be reasonable. And that we're not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's pray together.